Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to another episode of the Third Reich History Podcast. I'm Ryan Stackers. This week, we have another installment from the Roots of Nazism series. The Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy was central to the Nazi worldview and informed much of their thinking about supposedly alien cultural influences and un-German ideas infecting society when they came to power. As such, it seemed to be a prime candidate for our series on key concepts in Nazism. It's a big idea that draws on existing tropes in European culture, though, so it's going to be a two-parter. The first part, which you'll get today, is going to go over, essentially, a crash course in modern anti-Semitism from the Enlightenment to the end of the First World War and the Russian Revolution. We also have a news update, in keeping with that theme. As promised any listeners who may have wandered over from the New Books Network, I have a brief excerpt from my interview with Eric D. Weitz about three landmark works in the historiography of the Weimar Republic. So, without further ado, let's move right into the news. In Weimar Germany, you make this argument that the elites were hostile to the Republic, which leads you to describe the events of 1918-19 as an incomplete revolution. Correct. Was there something the Democratic parties did to alienate these elites or something that they might have done differently to win their support? Yeah, they they believed in democracy. That was the first part. They alienated the elites. When we're talking about the elites, they're a compi- it's a composite term for old line no- nobles, businessmen, you know, big big businessmen, army officers, high state officials, and their commitment. This is a big generalization, of course, but their commitment to democracy was highly, highly limited. They believed in a legal state, the German Rechtsstaat, but they had no commitment to democracy beyond that. So when the revolution broke out in 1918-19, they accepted the revolution because they were their legitimacy had been undermined by four years of war, by the disastrous conditions in which Germany found itself at the end of the war, and because of their enormous fear of Bolshevism. So at that moment, in those turbulent conditions, they felt that the democratic forces, and in particular the Social Democratic Party, was their best way forward to, to, to accept democracy, at least at that moment, while holding in reserve, shall we say, their intense opposition to democracy as such. So as someone who's delved into the colorful world of Weimar, <laughs> I, to, to put it mildly, uh, I, I really like that you were, uh, or, or, I, 
I noticed that you revisited the subject of Peter Gay's Weimar culture, as well as Detlef Poikert and Hans Mommsen's work. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, I was wondering just if you could share your thoughts about these influential uh, books, as well as what you think your own work is bringing to the discussion. Well, all three remain masterworks. and I, I, I learned from all of them. I grew up on Peter Gay's Weimar culture. But Peter Gay was, I was a great historian, he was very close to the Weimar exiles in New York City and at Columbia and, and at Yale. And I think he absorbed their perspective on Weimar which is to say that Weimar was always deeply flawed. Weimar always had strong authoritarian elements to it, to Weimar culture, to Weimar society. The longing for a leader that, that Peter Gay wrote about eloquently. And that Weimar then became the prelude to the Third Reich, sort of the... the, the, the this almost seamless movement from Weimar into the Third Reich, which is a position I, I very clearly reject in the book, and we can talk more about that in a few minutes. That that was not the exiles' understanding of Weimar as they lived it. That is, the people who were somewhat older than, than Peter Gay, who came to the United States, I believe, if I recall correctly, when he was eight years old in 1938. The older exiles who lived Weimar, at the time, they flourished in Weimar society. They thoroughly enjoyed Weimar society, it gave them opportunities, many of the many, but not all of them Jewish, gave them opportunities that they never would have had in the old German Empire before 1918. But in exile, they look back with the, 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 the very, very difficult circumstances of exile that most of them lived through. Uh, you know, we, we know about the luminaries like Thomas Mann and, and, and Albert Einstein, who landed in the United States quite well and, and lived reasonably well. But for most emigrants, most exiles, life was extremely difficult. And of course, they, 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 they mourned deeply the Third Reich, which was for them uh, the, the worst, the uh, unimaginably terrible p- political circumstances. So then in retrospect, they saw, but only in retrospect, they then saw Weimar as the prelude to, to the Third Reich. And that's the position Peter Gay absorbed. And of course, there's a heavy psychological interpretation, the revolt of the sons against the fathers, that you kind of have to be <laughs> except Freudian psychology to fully accept Peter Gay's interpretation there. Nonetheless, it's yeah, it, it's, it's a classic book. And as far as I know, it's still in print or, or since its original publication in 1968. Still a mainstay on comprehensive examination reading lists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as is Detlef Poikert, and as is uh, Hans Mommsen's. I'll get back to Poikert in a second. Mommsen's is the most thorough political history of the Weimar Republic. And 
I accept and argue from his interpretation that Weimar did not collapse. Weimar was destroyed. It was destroyed by those whom he calls the bourgeois right. I'm not sure that's the best term. Nonetheless, I think he was absolutely correct that there was a consistent attack on the Republic. When I responded to your first question, I mentioned the conservatives who were hostile to democracy. So they they accepted the Republic in 1918-19 because it was the least of all evils as far as they could see. But uh, as soon as they were able to regain the initiative, they, 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 they essentially launched the attack on the Republic, along with, of course, the new radical right, the Nazis, the most powerful and, and, and successful of them. But Mumsen's political analysis is, I think, correct, that the Republic was destroyed. It didn't just collapse, as so many people write and say. Um, the Republic was destroyed by what those whom Mumsen calls the bourgeois right. I'm not sure that's the best term exactly, but those people, the people about whom you asked me at the beginning, the conservative elites who then collaborated with the new radical right, the Nazis, of course, the most powerful and dynamic among the, the, the many, many radical right groups. Together, they destroyed the Weimar Republic. They launched the attack upon it as soon after 1918-19 as those old conservative elites felt comfortable enough that they could resume their hostility to democracy. So Mumsen's book is uh, the, the most detailed political account, and for those who, who relish political history, it still remains a, a very acute study and analysis. Detlef Poikert wrote in a very, very sophisticated analysis of the Republic, the crisis of classical modernity, as he called it. In many ways, though, he also described a Republic that was sort of overloaded, in a sense, by democracy, by the demands from so many sides for social programs, for by, from workers, for higher wages, and in his view, the Republic could not manage all these demands and then began to promote toward the end of its existence an almost a eugenics type policy that deliberately sought, sought to marginalize those who were quote unquote non-productive. And there are certainly elements of truth there. But like, like Mumsen, uh, Poikett paid very, very little attention to Weimar culture. And there's a strange way in which Poikett's book, as good as it is, merges in its analysis with so many accounts that describe the Republic or depict the Republic as overloaded, overloaded by mass democracy, by mass demonstrations, 
by mass demands upon it that it could not fulfill. And there's certainly some truth to that. But I think the analysis is a bit limited in that regard. Nonetheless, all three books are certainly worth reading, certainly classics for anyone who wants to understand the German 1920s and early 1930s. That does it for the news, and now on to the main event. Part 1 on the roots of the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. Today, we're going to talk about a core tenet of Nazi ideology, specifically the so-called Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. The Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy was at the center of the Nazi worldview. In essence, it was the belief that a shadowy network of Jews bent on the destruction of the German people were colluding through a combination of capitalist financiers and communist revolutionaries. In its more extreme iterations, this was a literal conspiracy, a sustained assault on the German people through, quote, innumerable cover organizations of world Jewry, which serve as outer manifestations of the opponent, or, so quoth Reinhard Heydrich and Das Schwarze Korps. In, quote unquote, respectable anti-Semitism, it manifested as more abstract racist commentary about the alien nature of the Jews and pernicious influence of supposedly innately Jewish ideas that undermine society from within by subverting good German values. I want to begin by saying that obviously this conspiracy theory was nonsense, but it was dangerous nonsense that defined an entire group as enemies of the people by making flying leaps in logic that span centuries of tangential connections to justify the exclusion of Jews from German society. So, if the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy was nonsense, how could it convince so many people that Germany was threatened by the alien cultural influences of an enemy from within? This is one of the most difficult questions to answer, but it's also one of the most important. At its core, the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy was a scapegoat narrative, but it was also much, much more than that. It was built upon long-standing tropes, but it was also responding to much more recent ruptures with the past. The fear of a world modernizing faster than could be understood, massive political and economic disruption, cultural upheaval, a total break with the past, and a headlong rush toward an uncertain future. But more important than any of these factors individually was the way that it stitched those experiences into a narrative that made sense of a pace of events that defied comprehension. The Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy offered a sense of stability and comprehensibility in a radically unstable world. Back when I was an undergraduate, I remember having a conversation with one of my German language professors. We chatted about my fascination with the culture and points of bewildering contradiction with Nazism. I told him I could wrap my head around the effects of the Great Depression in the rise of fascism and the cult of personality and popular support, but I confessed to being completely incapable of understanding how anybody could possibly believe that a group of people as diverse as all of the members of an entire religious tradition could somehow be engaged in an insidious plot. Clearly this was scapegoating, and that made sense on an individual or even a communal level, but as an entire society, it beggared belief. My professor's response surprised me in a way that left me profoundly unsettled. Rather than agreeing when I suggested that belief in the conspiracy was the product of an impossibly effective propaganda campaign, 
which is to say, instead of engaging in the same style of two-dimensional thinking that spawns conspiracy theory, he gently encouraged me to consider how the situation appeared to Germans in 1933. I forget exactly what I said in response, but I vividly remember the feeling of suddenly being extraordinarily uncomfortable and studying the SRS logo in the black vinyl glove box with laser focus. The conspiracy theory responsible for the Holocaust was not an area I'd ever been asked to exercise intellectual empathy before. At that point, the only people I'd ever heard do anything more than simply dismiss the idea out of hand as a lie, full stop, no elaboration, those people had been neo-Nazi Holocaust deniers. I also remember that as he elaborated, mentioning Marx's and Rosa Luxemburg's Jewish family history, I was left feeling totally at sea. I didn't know how to process what he was saying because it broke the orthodox binary that I had heard over and over again. Either the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy was complete BS, or you had somehow accidentally stumbled into a conversation about the Third Reich with a neo-Nazi. Now, I owe that professor a great debt of gratitude, because what he did is everything that universities stand for in the use of critical thinking for the pursuit of truth. As I said, at the time, I was unsure how to respond. Obviously, my Germanistic professor was not a Holocaust denier or some kind of Nazi apologist, but he was breaking down some very entrenched conceptual barriers that kept things neatly arranged. I retreated into some reaffirming statement at the time as best as I can recall, but being the phlegmatic, unflappable man that he was, he maintained that, as misguided as the belief was, the Nazis had not invented it from whole cloth. There are really five responses when something like this leaves you hanging in cognitive dissonance. First, you can integrate the new information into your existing narratives. The problem was, this didn't mesh easily with what I already knew. Second, you can reject the contradictory information as invalid. But, if what my professor said was true, which I later confirmed, that would mean willful disregard for the facts. Third, you can accept the new information as entirely superseding what came before, and this was impossible for the same reasons I couldn't reject the new information out of hand. Fourth, you can throw up your hands in the face of complexity and say it's unknowable, but this was obviously too important to let it all slide. Fifth, and what I decided on, was to ride out the uncertainty, re-examine my thinking, and look at the evidence without rushing to a conclusion. The issue wasn't that the evidence wasn't there. It was that in a post-Holocaust world, once fact had been sorted from fiction and the dominant narratives agreed upon, people didn't feel the need to discuss the finer points of Nazi ideology outside of some very rarefied specialist conversations. It's similar to this rather amusing problem that some of my medievalist colleagues have told me about. Uh, there's this search to find an actual description of the habits of one of the Holy Roman emperors because they were always described as being so atrociously scandalous in letters between his courtiers. But apparently his eccentricities were so well known that nobody thought that it was worth committing all of this to paper. They just say, oh, you know, he was at it again and that's it, right? Well, how does this relate? While the monstrous consequences of Nazism were still part of living memory, it was enough to simply say the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy was hogwash and move on to whatever else you happen to be writing about. The issue is that that left subsequent generations of people, like teenage Ryan, with very little to go on in most descriptions beyond the received wisdom of because I said so, once it had passed out of collective consciousness. That's dangerous. 
It seeds the field to those who know just enough about something to be dangerous, or worse, those who want to pursue an agenda with a selective presentation of the facts. Well, this was one of two conundrums that turned my studies from a more general interest in the world wars to more critical engagement with Nazism. Much like the paradox between Hitler's power resting on popular support and terror, how could a conspiracy theory, which by its very nature was a fabrication, also contain elements of truth? If you open the door to some elements being true, where were the fabrications? And how was the patchwork of half-truths stitched together into a coherent whole? So, while I was outlining this episode trying to put together the answers to those questions for you, I ran into some difficulty trying to weave together what became a concise history of anti-Semitism. If you go too far into depth about any of the different pieces of the puzzle on their own, you kind of lose track of how they fit together in the Nazi imagination. You also end up with something that should properly be an entire university course, so I want you to know that each of the topics I am going to blithely blast through have entire historiographies of their own that I am in no way whatsoever doing justice. As you might imagine, though, we're going to have to go through some mental gymnastics to get an image of Jews as both liberal financiers and revolutionary communists. So it'll be a two-parter. In part one, we'll go over a history of modern anti-Semitism from the Enlightenment to the point where the Nazis enter the scene. First, I'm very briefly going to go over attitudes concerning civic emancipation of Jews in Germany during the Haskalah and the broader European Enlightenment. Then, I'm going to sketch the rise of the Rothschild family as the symbol of Jewish finance, a kind of George Soros for the Nazi imagination. From there, we'll move into the origins of a few key works from the turn of the century that laid the foundation of the contemporary anti-Semitism the Nazis would come to espouse. That's all we'll have time to cover in part one. So you know where all this is headed, though. In part two, we'll run through a concise economic and political history of the Weimar Republic to trace the development of these ideas in the broader political culture where the Nazis rose to prominence. Finally, there will be a few examples from leading National Socialists to illustrate how these threads intertwined in the Nazi imagination. Actual Jewish policy is a topic for another day. Right now, we're concerned with the development of the idea of a Jewish conspiracy behind that policy. So, sit back and strap in for a quick couple hundred years of intellectual, cultural, economic, and political history. Where did modern anti-Semitism come from? Well, Jews had long occupied a marginal position in European society. The Fourth Council of the Lateran in 1215 required Jews and Muslims to wear special clothing, including yellow badges, to distinguish them from Christians. Their situation improved throughout the Middle Ages, particularly in Poland, where royal charters guaranteed the community personal freedoms, a separate legal system, and even protections against persecution. But most Jewish communities in Western Europe negotiated residence with the chartered towns and cities that functioned as semi-independent, self-governing commercial zones under feudalism. Citizenship came at a price, literally. Qualifying as a citizen carried some type of means test and was restricted to Christians, generally speaking. But for Jews, so long as a community paid, it could remain on whatever terms had been negotiated. In line with the strict regulation of society through the guild system, these agreements often included restrictions on employment, marriage, movement, curfew, dress, and every other imaginable aspect of life. Think of the neighborhood association from hell that 
rolls in every couple decades to burn down your block and murder some of your neighbors. I say this because localized pogroms where a town might expel its entire Jewish community or individuals would be blamed for a crisis and executed, well, this was not uncommon in Western Europe, but concerted, widespread persecution generally occurred in three waves. The first was in the mid-1300s during the Black Plague, which was blamed upon Jews. The second was the Khmelnytsky pogroms in the mid-1600s connected to a Cossack rebellion. And the third was the Hep-Hep riots of the early 1800s that accompanied Jewish emancipation in the German states. The Enlightenment of the 1700s and its associated ideas of political liberalism and universal human rights raised some uncomfortable questions about the status of Jews in European societies. The argument for placing constitutional limits on the divine rights of monarchs and sharing decision-making among authority with citizens was grounded in the idea that all men were created equal. One step at a time, right? Anyway, the idea that fundamental equality justified the shared exercise of power ran up against the question of who exactly counted as equal. A lot of ink was spilled on the subject during the lead-up to the French Revolution, but there are three particularly influential men whose ideas we're going to focus on because they were part of a highly public debate that encapsulates the spectrum of thought in the German states. The first was Christian Wilhelm von Dohm, a Prussian civil servant, Freemason of the Castle Crowned Lion's Lodge, and general man of letters. Dohm published a massive two-volume polemic arguing for the civic emancipation of Jews on humanitarian grounds, which is to say, granting them the same rights as everyone else, such as they stood in an absolute monarchy. He quite eloquently argued that their current status was the result of, quote, inhuman and unpolitical prejudices of the darkest centuries, the result of fanatical religious hatred that is unworthy of the enlightenment of our times and that should long since have been eradicated. However, his chosen title on the civil improvement of Jews should tip you off that his thinking on the matter came with a few asterisks attached. Nothing about Judaism as such was incompatible with citizenship in Dome's eyes. But Jews would first need to be rehabilitated from degenerate merchants into upstanding farmers, artisans, and soldiers, preferably as part of a broader German nation-building project. The best way to do this? Internal colonization of sparsely populated eastern areas of Prussia, or, even better, a colonial undertaking cultivating coffee in Madagascar. It's worth pointing out here that the Nazis actually seriously considered following through on Dohm's suggestion two centuries later and looked into the feasibility of deporting Germany's Jews to Madagascar. In Nazi thinking, Dohm was, in the most charitable reading, a German who recognized the Jews as degenerates, but was convinced by the folly of liberal universalism fermented by cosmopolitan Freemasons that they could somehow be integrated into German society. Johann David Michaelis meanwhile held that Jews were somehow innately alien. A biblical scholar and leading light of the Göttingen School of Historiography, Michaelis was another liberal constitutional reformer who, in many ways, fathered modern anti-Semitism. When Michaelis looked at Jewish ghettos, where communities bound together by faith remain constrained by feudal agreements regulating their lives, he didn't see a group in need of emancipation. He fixated on the stubborn adherence to traditions, some voluntary and some imposed, which bound the community together. He saw backward people, incapable of assimilation, 
So, he developed an entire climatological theory of race through his scholarship that justified the sorry state of Jews in German society. Because if you don't see someone as human, you don't have to feel bad about their suffering. According to Michaelis' analysis of the Bible and his study of the historical figures in it, Moses was an inspired lawgiver who relied on the, quote, highly developed legislative wisdom of the Egyptians. Somewhat ignorant rabbis, his words, not mine, had then done some tricky figuring with these insights to invent the Talmud. The trauma of the Babylonian captivity had then fostered a puritanical adherence to the letter of this law and removed the tradition from the flow of history. Jews thus remained a, quote, unmixed southern race whose institutions and beliefs could never, quote, melt together in the multinational, multi-confessional political order which he envisioned. Political institutions needed to reflect organic developments expressing the national character of a language and culture. Any of this starting to sound familiar yet? Anyway, Mosaic law, as divine revelation, only provided further justification for absolute monarchs in the German states who drew upon the biblical example of King David. It would be foolish to deny that wider conclusions about the Jews were not influenced by traditional religious prejudices. But Michaelis's analysis, and others like it, were conceived as an avenue for Orientalists to undermine biblical legitimization of absolute monarchies, understood as the primary impediment to the formation of a German state. In this reading, the Jewish religion could be incompatible with both a liberal polity and Germanness writ large. The irony of Michaelis's thinking is that, much like the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy itself, there are parts of it where you can kind of see how it makes sense if you squint. The enslavement of an entire people would clearly deepen their commitment to a shared tradition to retain a sense of self in the face of such persecution, kind of the same way that continued exclusion from civil rights would prevent the distance between Jewish communities confined to the ghettos and the societies they lived alongside from ever being bridged. But that final leap in empathy simply wasn't there for Michaelis. The common thread between our two Christian thinkers here is that both saw Jews as fundamentally un-German and cut off from the rest of society. Now, the remove was a physical reality at the time, and Jews, as a result of the agreements governing their lives, were often excluded from trades and restricted to commerce and finance. The real difference between the two authors here is that one has an aristocrat's distaste for venal merchants, but believes that Jews can be integrated through civic improvement, well, the other believes that there is something innately alien about Jewishness which precludes them from ever being part of the body politic. Both were looking for a constitutional monarchy, but ultimately, this idea of Jewishness as not only alien, but somehow incompatible with Germanness, that was what persisted. The thing is, Dohm was still a radically progressive man for his time. The idea that Jews could even possess nobility of character, as the famous playwright Lessing suggested in Natan the Wise, that idea was openly mocked at the time. Performances of Natan the Wise were actually forbidden by the church. There's a reason that I raised Lessing's famous play, though. Dom came to his interest in the subject of Jewish emancipation through his collaboration with the same man who provided the inspiration for Lessing's Natan. That man was Moses Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn was the son of an impoverished scribe who rose to notoriety as an influential public intellectual in the Republic of Letters at a time when Jews still lived in segregated ghettos. 
If you want an example of the pen being mightier than the sword, look no further. Mendelssohn was a leading light of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, which sought to integrate European Jews into the societies in which they lived while retaining a sense of Jewish identity. A largely self-taught polymath who cut his teeth on Locke's essay concerning human understanding, Mendelssohn was an intellectual superstar. His response to Dome, the book Jerusalem, alongside his frequent literary skirmishes with Michaelis, tellingly argued for civic admission rather than civic improvement. Mendelssohn argued that rabbinic law could hardly be used to justify the exclusion of Jews from civil society as its rules were by Jews for Jews. The Talmud only proposed regulating the behavior of observance rather than imposing matters of private conscience on the broader community. Mendelssohn's polemics flipped Michaelis's argument on its head in an act of intellectual jujitsu. Jewishness, rather than being fundamentally at odds with the liberal constitutional order, was in fact an even better foundation for a secular polity, which guaranteed rights regardless of one's religion. And here, the Nazis were in full agreement. Only they saw that as the original sin of supposedly Jewish liberalism. This takes us to the Rothschilds. Around the same time, the debates about Jewish emancipation were playing out in journals and lively salon debates. The rise of Europe's most successful banking dynasty was also underway. This would be the capitalist financier part of the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. The Nazis were obsessed by the idea that Jewish control of capital was responsible for Germany's woes. Bankers, but specifically Jewish bankers, the story goes, not only profited from the misery of the German people, they shaped world events to their advantage. This went beyond simple opportunism and vested interest. They engineered disasters with the malicious intent of destabilizing the countries where they lived to profit from the chaos. Germany, having recognized their nefarious ways and taken steps to limit Jewish influence under the Nazis, had made itself a target of an international conspiracy of Jewish bankers. Of course, any of you listening who have studied economics, listened to the statements of central banking authorities, or actually talked to someone from the rarefied breed of those who work in high finance, will know that value, growth, and stability are very front of mind. This is often buttressed by theories that either explain away or cultivate a comfortable blind spot around knock-on effects. But hubris, ignorance, error, and greed, as well as herd behavior during market cycles, are to blame for financial crises, rather than any intentionally engineered disaster. Economics is certainly a tool of statecraft, but run on well-defined principles, rather than the realm of shadowy conspiracy commanded by Jewish puppet masters. The Rothschilds, better known by their anglicized style of Rothschild, became the symbol of Jewish finance thanks to their staggering success, and later served as a stand-in for the failure of monopolistic capitalism. Historically, Christianity had forbidden charging interest on loans. It was called usury, and it was a sin. A mortal sin, in fact, since the Third Council of the Lateran in 1179, which meant that you were ineligible for the sacraments or Christian burial. Before the Protestant Reformation, that's the only game in town. Thing is, that's a really tough row to hoe from the standpoint of trade and commerce. It more or less restricts Christians to straight barter and makes any large-scale lending an insane proposition. And on top of that, apart from livestock, your options for movable wealth are limited. I mean, 
how are you going to scrape together enough resources to buy the grain from town A and take it to city B if no one will give you a loan? So people charge interest because it's risky to lend money. Sometimes people don't give it back to you, right? So interest gives me a reason to lend you money. Even if you're trustworthy, it also protects me in case of an emergency. What if your wagon catches fire and the grain is ruined? Let's say I do this for a living. The only way I can write that off as a loss is if I've got enough money to cover it from the other merchants who successfully took their grain to market. One of the reasons that medieval towns and cities liked having Jewish communities was because they could serve as middlemen greasing the wheels of commerce. A Christian can't charge a Christian interest, but they can go through a Jewish middleman. Or they can charge a Jewish merchant interest on a loan for all that grain, and vice versa. Now, some theology permitted interest to be charged for opportunity cost, and Leo X did away with usury as a mortal sin in 1515. So not all bankers were Jewish, although a higher proportion of Jews were involved in trade and commerce due to restrictions barring them from the trades. It was just that as international finance took off during the Industrial Revolution, the family which dominated for over a hundred years happened to be Jewish. The Rothschild dynasty was founded by Meir Amschot Rothschild. Meir turned the family business in trade and currency exchange into a position as court factor to the crown prince of Hesse, which was basically a Jew responsible for managing the monarch's sovereign debt. The Rothschild family excelled because they basically invented modern international finance off this. Mayo was a prolific man, and each of his five sons became the heads of branch offices established in the different capitals of Europe. As Cicero said, the sinews of war are infinite money, and the political turmoil of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars offered ample opportunities to cash in, organizing loans to finance the war effort and buy up war bonds. At a total cost of £831 million sterling, roughly three trillion pounds when adjusted for inflation, fortunes supplying Britain and her allies were waiting to be made. The British branch of the Rothschild family, headed by Natan, made the nest egg that secured the family's supremacy in international finance for the next century because they played the game better than anyone else at the time. Indeed, they invented it. Natan established a network which shipped gold bullion to the continent for Wellington's war chest, and that same network gave the Rothschilds an edge when it came to information. Not only were their agents everywhere gathering information, communication by carrier pigeon edged out the competition by days and weeks. Imagine being the first high-speed algorithmic trader, or the first person to exploit the advantage of setting up a server farm on the main line in New York, but then imagine that you hold on to that advantage for years and it's during a time when the same obscene amounts of money are sloshing around as you see during the Second World War or the Second Iraq War. So yes, the Rothschilds were set for generations, thanks to Nathan. From there, the family used their experience from the Napoleonic Wars to coordinate grand state infrastructure projects and found extractive sector giants that defined the Industrial Revolution. The Suez Canal, the British Colony of Rhodesia, the De Beers Diamond Company, the Rio Tinto Gold Company, all founded on capital organized through the Rothschilds. Finance at this level can obviously sway political decision-making. 
the popular view of the family as early as 1836 went something along the lines of this Boston Weekly quote. The Rothschilds are the wonders of modern banking. We see the descendants of Judah, after a persecution of 2,000 years, peering above kings, rising higher than emperors, and holding a whole continent in the hollow of their hands. The Rothschilds govern a Christian world. Not a cabinet moves without their advice. They stretch their hand with equal ease from Petersburg to Vienna, from Vienna to Paris, from Paris to London, from London to Washington. Baron Rothschild, the head of this house, is the true king of Judah, the prince of the captivity, the Messiah so long looked for by this extraordinary people. He holds the keys of peace and war, blessing or cursing. They are the brokers and counselors of the kings of Europe and the Republican chiefs of America. To say the Rothschilds governed the Christian world and decided whether wars happen is poetic overstatement. But, even accounting for their immense influence, none of this was nefarious. It's just how high finance and sovereign debt worked. The market followed the Rothschilds because they were the smart money of the day. And it's not as if they were paying for all of this stuff out of their own pockets. Like any capital project, the Rothschilds moved financial resources from different actors toward a desired end. And, as a bank, it was all floated on a combination of their own cash reserves and money they borrowed from someone else and charged interest on to compensate them for taking on the risk. Because sometimes your money goes up in smoke, like with the first Suez Canal project. Now, they had an interest in making sure things went their way once they were invested in a particular project. Don't get me wrong. Their interest held great sway because they were the most powerful banking family in the world. But they were only one of many non-state actors working toward the same goals as some governments and at cross-purposes against others. That's not a conspiracy, that's life. The branches of the family coordinated, but even here they frequently found themselves in competition. There's definitely an argument to be made that monopolies and cartels, given free reign during Gilded Age capitalism, caused totally unnecessary human misery. But none of that was a Jewish conspiracy. It was a failure of political leadership to regulate the economy in a way that worked for everyone and limit the influence of money in politics. So where does the connection with communism come from in the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy? After all, up till now, we've been talking about the world of high finance. Enter Karl Marx. Yes, that Karl Marx. Karl Marx was born during the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars in 1818 to an ethnically Jewish middle-class family in Trier, Germany. What does that mean? Well, Marx's father, Herschel, was a man of the Enlightenment. When Napoleon had conquered the Rhineland, French revolutionary laws de facto emancipated the German Jews as they had been already in France. After the Council of Vienna, though, a counter-revolutionary wave had abrogated civil rights for Jews in the Rhineland where the Marx family lived. Herschel converted and was baptized as Heinrich in the Protestant Evangelical Church at that time. The young Karl was born shortly thereafter, and Heinrich ensured that his son had a broad-ranging classical education paving the way for his rise through society life. Marx made his way in the world as a journalist, which saw him editing a radical Parisian newspaper in the 1840s. It was there, in the Café de Régence, that he began his lifelong friendship with Friedrich Engels, the other half of their dynamic communist duo. Engels, and his beard, hailed from a pietist family in the industrial region around Wuppertal, 
where they had pursued their fortune in textiles as the Industrial Revolution got into swing. It was in this capacity that Engels had made business connections in Manchester, England, and found a shared disgust with the conditions of working people that formed the basis of a lifelong friendship with Marx. As you might know, Marx was notoriously hostile toward religion, which he regarded as the, and I quote, opiate of the masses. This holds true for all of the other names we're going to come up now. None of them were practicing Jews. Many of the revolutionaries were openly hostile to religion as such, and the others were atheists or came from integrated families actually baptized into one of the Christian traditions. The thing is, for anti-Semites, Jewishness was not religious practice or even an ethnic cultural tradition. It was a race, something in the blood which made them incapable of being assimilated into an existing society, as Michaelis had described. At worst, as the thinking surrounded the conspiracy, developed over time, and was connected to political crisis after political crisis, anti-Semites increasingly viewed Jews as an inherently destabilizing force, bad actors seeking the downfall of the German people, a group which needed to be removed from society. Never mind the contradiction that both the biggest family in finance and the most vociferous critic of capitalism are quote-unquote Jews, People do strange things when they need answers for their dismay. Of course, the Communist Manifesto, which Marx wrote, famously calls for dictatorship of the proletariat, wherein workers seize control of the means of production through violent revolution. The Manifesto, though, was actually not particularly well known at the time of its initial publication in 1848. The revolutions of that year were predominantly loose coalitions of middle-class liberal nationalists and workers looking to establish constitutional monarchies and legislative assemblies or expand the franchise of existing institutions. In the words of Alexis de Tocqueville, society in 1848 was cut in two, quote, those who had nothing united in common envy and those who had something united in common terror. To characterize broadly though, very broadly given the diverse interests at play, these were democratic nationalist revolutions. Think Arab Spring, and about as successful. Anyway, 1848 eked out some space for sham parliaments, despite the crackdowns which followed. These institutions had little real power, really in an advisory board to the monarch, but public distaste for revolution favored incremental reforms under the banner of national liberals and democratic socialists until the 1870s. What changed at that time? For starters, the winners of the Industrial Revolution were consolidating their gains into monopolies. Add to this that the completion of major infrastructure projects were reducing the need for labor-intensive products like steel at the same time that efficiencies from the Second Industrial Revolution were further depressing wages, and you start to see something that looks a lot like today. Stagnant wage growth, a sluggish labor market in the aftermath of the crash, and growing inequality only with a much lower baseline where widespread famines were still in living memory. Things were really heating up by the turn of the century. The German Socialist Party predicted the imminent collapse of capitalism in the 1891 Erfurt program, proposing incremental reform and fighting for concrete improvements in workers' lives along the way. This included things such as better wages, improved safety, a welfare system, shorter workdays, and pensions. All of this at a time when child labor and 12-hour shifts in mines and steel mills resulted in frequent accidents that killed people or left them crippled and incapable of supporting themselves. 
So how does this come back to blaming the Jews for everything? Well, Marx and one of the three framers of the Erfurt program were both from Jewish extraction. But to see how anti-Semitism is transformed from distaste for individual figures into a full-blown conspiracy attempting to undermine society, well, we have to take a detour through Russia, land of the information operation. Tsarist Russia was not immune to the wave of social changes unleashed by the Industrial Revolution that were sweeping across Europe at this time. The difference was that it was trying to cover much more ground in much less time. 1905 was a particularly bad year for the old guard there. First, the Tsar had been forced to allow the establishment of a parliament. Then, Russia suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Japanese. Now, this carried special significance at a time when the great European powers had far-flung empires that spanned the globe. Asia was either directly controlled or effectively dominated through lopsided trading relationships backed up by gunboat diplomacy, so-called because you park a battleship in the harbor and start blasting if the terms aren't to your liking. Anyway, all the racial pseudoscience of the day described Asians as inferior to Europeans, so a loss would have been a grave embarrassment. Utter annihilation, as happened at the Battle of the Tsushima Straits, turned the world upside down. Russia lost their Far East fleet, like all of it, including 11 battleships and all but one cruiser, tumbling from the third largest navy in the world to the sixth in the process. The Russians went into a protective hunch in the Baltic until the First World War as a result, and there are a lot of really interesting geopolitical consequences that come out of that. But for our purposes, we're focusing on the subsequent revolution of 1905. Bloody Sunday, when the Tsar's royal guards fired into a crowd of peaceful petitioners coming to express their support and ask the Tsar for help, kicked off a revolutionary uprising. That in turn raised the specter of a democratic overthrow of the Tsar, and establishing the new Duma as an actual legislative body rather than an advisory board. The Tsarists didn't like that idea one bit. They had actually been fighting the push for democratic reform for a few years now. One of the key documents in that battle was the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion stands as a towering example of political disinformation. We are still living with the consequences of this document to this day. The Protocols claim to be minutes of a secret meeting of Jewish world leaders. Various editions describe it as being read aloud at the First Zionist Congress of 1897, while others claim it was stolen from the secret files of a French organization. The thing is, we know the protocols to be a fabrication. Sections on control of the press, the government, and finance are all directly plagiarized from the work of a French lawyer and satirist, Maurice Jolie. Jolie was writing in the mid-1800s, criticizing Napoleon III in his Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. But the reason the protocols have such staying power is because they are vague enough to serve as a Rorschach. It lets you see what you want to see. Pick a crisis, and much like your horoscope, the protocols of Zion will have a section you can point to as evidence of Jewish methods at work in the background. The protocols purported to reveal a worldwide Jewish conspiracy seeking the downfall of Christian civilizations, like Russia. The editions printed between 1903 and 1906 trace back to the ultra-nationalist Black Hundreds, who used the protocols to paint democratic reform as Jewish 
and therefore un-Russian next to Christian devotion to the Tsar. After that, a religious writer with ties to the royal family published several more editions. The protocols went viral. In the United States, Henry Ford paid for the publication of 500,000 copies. In Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II heavily subsidized publication. Even Winston Churchill, the year before the forgery was revealed, it should be noted, went on the record about the protocols as follows. There is no need to exaggerate the part played in the creation of Bolshevism and in the actual bringing about of the Russian Revolution by these international and, for the most part, atheistical Jews. It is certainly a very great one. It outweighs all others. The thing is, the revolution Churchill was talking about was a different one from 1905. The big one. The Communist Revolution of 1917. Once again, the causes of the Russian Revolution are far more complex than I can do justice here. But what matters for our purposes is that during the chaos of Russia's ignominious exit from the First World War, the communists came out on top. The confluence of vested power and anti-Semites had fresh ammunition to paint anything left of center as not just alien, but revolutionary. How so? Well, the Russian Revolution was both the immediate origin and the ultimate proof of the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. Events of later years would reinforce the narrative that communism was inherently Jewish, but the composition of the first Politburo was really the Urfaust. The original Central Committee of Lenin, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Stalin, Sokolnikov, and Buvnov had five members with Jewish backgrounds, including Lenin himself. So regardless of the fact that some of these connections went back to a single grandparent, some were mixed marriages, and none were practicing, in the eyes of anti-Semitic conspiracists, QED. Of course, all of this is like everyone in the Great Lakes region being one something the Iroquois. If you look long enough and hard enough, you can find a connection. And with the Protocols of Zion there, there is a convenient, pre-built narrative that links everything together back to a broader Jewish conspiracy. You might think that with all this brouhaha around down with the bourgeoisie, up with the proletariat, Jews might be in danger of losing their status as masters of finance, or the capitalist end of the conspiracy would at least break down a bit. Never fear, though. Zionism is here. So let's backtrack a bit and go and look at the West. Zionism arose in the late 19th century in response to perceived failures of the assimilationist course. The Dreyfus Affair was especially disheartening in Western Europe, in a nutshell, it was about German intelligence wheedling their way into French military secrets, but it was also much more. Dreyfus was a captain in the French army who was wrongly convicted of treason and publicly humiliated. We're talking about a national event. Like, he was paraded through the streets, epaulets torn off his shoulders in a public ceremony, and then sent off to the Devil's Island prison colony. He was also Jewish. But when new information revealed his innocence and pointed to another officer as the real culprit, the army actually suppressed it. Now, eventually all of this came out through Emile Zola's famous Jacques article. But Jews in Western Europe began to look for alternatives to assimilation as a result. It just so happens that the Rothschilds, remember them? They were starting to buy land from Ottoman landlords in Israel. Anyway, skip ahead to the First World War again, and Britain finds itself at war with Germany and its allies, which just happens to include, as you may know, the Ottomans. Herbert Samuel, a member of the cabinet and a Zionist, 
pushed for the government to support the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine on seized Ottoman land as a way to enlist Jewish support for the war effort. The longer history of this goes back to the British interest in a geopolitical check on economic power by establishing a friendly presence in the Middle East. Once again, though, what we have here are the logics of power at play and the kind of meddling in the lives of average people that characterized the late 19th and early 20th century but by no means a Jewish conspiracy, simply business as usual in the era of secret diplomacy in the great game. By the by, this would be why that whole post-1945 human rights and rules-based international order thing is something worth holding on to, in spite of the flaws of any human institution. But I digress. Here, then, was the evidence of how the grand Zionist conspiracy rolled into the broader Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. Zionists, including the most powerful banking family in the world, were at the heart of the war against Germany, or so it would later be portrayed in certain circles. Never mind the July crisis, or the collapse of the Concert of Europe, or the system of secret diplomacy and alliances, or the dreadnought race, or gunboat diplomacy, or everything else that had contributed to rising tensions between Germany and Britain before spilling over into war. It had to be a conspiracy. With that, We'll conclude this episode of the Third Reich History Podcast and draw part one on the background of the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy to a close. Next time, we'll be going through the diplomatic, economic, and political history of interwar Germany to trace how the idea infused certain corners of politics where the Nazis eventually came to prominence, as well as the national socialist concept of the conspiracy. Before we go, though, I have some great news. Chris is done, defended, and we are currently planning an episode for his triumphal return. So on that note, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we both hope to see you next time. Until then. <laughs>